Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with author Anna Smith Spark. Anna lives in London and loves grimdark and epic fantasy and historical military fiction. She has a BA in classics, an MA in history, and a PhD in English literature. She has previously been published in the 14 Times and the poetry website greatworks.org.uk. Previous jobs include petty bureaucrat, English teacher, and fetish model. And his favorite authors and key influences are R. Scott Backer, Steve Erickson, M. John Harrison, Ursula Guin, Mary Stewart, and Mary Renault. She spent several years as an obsessive D&D player, and she can be spotted at science fiction and fantasy conventions wearing very unusual shoes. Anna is the author of the critically acclaimed Gimmel and BSF Awards shortlisted Empires of Dust, uh, which has been dubbed the Game of Literary Thrones, the next generation hit fantasy fiction by the Sunday Times. But all hail the Queen of Grimdark, Anna Smith-Spark. Oh, thank you. That's great to be here. Thank you. And I'm, I know I'm in amazing company. Quite a few of my favorite authors and really good friends have been on this podcast. So it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it helps that you've written one of my favorite trilogies over the past few years. So I uh, definitely appreciate you coming on. So, and it's also some kind of weird times. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I know we were talking a little bit off air about this kind of, you know, the differences between how it is here in Alabama and how it is for you over in the UK. You were talking about having a, a queue outside of your supermarket to get in to get groceries. Yeah, at the moment we're um, we're in total lockdown. Where I work from home, we're um, we're not allowed out of the house. We're allowed out of the house once a day for exercise, just to like walk or go for a bike ride. We're not allowed to drive anywhere unless it's urgent. Um, the police have actually people were like driving to natural parts, to local parks, sort of beauty spots and like, national parks, and the police were actually sending drones up over the national parks and taking photographs and warning people and setting up roadblocks and you can't drive out to like local forests and lakes and things. You have to stay in your area and just walk. We're allowed out once a day for exercise and we're allowed out to go to the supermarket for necessities. And they're limiting the number of people in and out of the supermarkets. So you have to queue to get in the supermarket because it's one in, one out. And you have to queue two metres away from people. So a queue of five people, right, it's, that's, that's already... Um, 10 meters <laughs> it's, um, it kind of sounds like jail <laughs> it's bizarre i mean we're not quite as bad as italy because we are or france we are allowed to walk kind of we're allowed to go for long walks in italy and france are not even allowed to go beyond 20 meters beyond the house or something but it's not quite as bad as that yet but um yeah no it's um it's insane uh, yeah, I, this is you're the first person I've spoken to since Wednesday about <laughs> the back of my house. We're um, we just not allowed. Basically, it's like just don't leave the house unless it's urgent. Apart from this, once a day just to get a bit of exercise. It's just <laughs> goodness gracious. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that you're the first person I've spoken to, but I, you know, I'm still here working remote, so I've got to talk to all my coworkers on a daily basis. And I talked to Dan Stout a couple of days ago, but yeah, it's. It's kind of similar here. I went to the grocery store this morning for the first time in several weeks. And uh, like my wife and I like set up a, like a, like a plan last night of how I was going to get this done, like the most efficient way. 
because she's, she's six months pregnant. So she's like uh-huh. super anxiety, you know? And she's like, all right, so you, you got your gloves, you got your mask. Here's the list. Don't bring it back in after you get done using it. <laughs> and, uh, and basically I, sh- I show up to, uh, to uh, Publix. It's one of our little local supermarkets. And, uh, there are already like 20 people waiting outside. It's just, uh, it's just so crazy. But they actually had everything in stock, which was the first. Oh no, we're um, we're being rationed. We're rationed on everything, and they get these announcements going around the supermarkets all the time saying, and we understand that we're seeing some runs on most popular items. These are bread, hand soap, washing powder. And you're just like, God, this is what it's come to. So the other day, I'm now in a street WhatsApp group. Our whole street has a WhatsApp group to check on people, and a really excited message went around the street WhatsApp group saying. Sainsbury's has toilet roll. <laughs> this is what it's come to. <laughs> this is what you get excited for. <laughs> it's like, oh my god! Like Sainsbury's has toilet roll. <laughs> right? Yeah, I actually asked uh, one of the cashiers. I go, so uh, I saw you guys had had toilet paper today, and she goes, she goes, yeah, we're uh, we put some out, you know, every morning. And I go, oh, so you guys just have like a stockpile in the back? She goes, yeah, don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, I saw a thing on Twitter saying like. You know, is there any particular time limit before we can start all just like dressing like Mad Max? I mean, by next week, I mean, we're, we're clearly at that point now. So, yeah. if I start just wandering around just wearing like a chain mail bikini and boots and a whip, is anyone going to say anything? <laughs> I mean, you, you definitely <laughs> have the shoe collection. I think you'll be okay. <laughs> It's kind of a, I'm a big fan of Tank Gun. It's like, so when do I start getting to have sex with kangaroos then? Because, I mean, we're, we're heading there, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, here in Alabama, we're not, you know, I think we're probably like in the, I don't know, like the lower percentile of like how many cases we have. But I have a feeling like New York City and New Jersey are going to start breaking out and Mad Max tire here pretty soon because they're like in the mid to high 30,000s in the cases. I yeah, think we're no, yeah. we're like uh, I don't know four or five hundred here in Alabama. So yeah, yeah. No, we're like that now. It's just um, I'm in. So I was supposed to be. Um, I supposed to have just. I was supposed to have just come home from being in Florida. I was supposed to have been on last week. I was supposed to be in Florida at the Conve- international convention for the fantastical and the arts, which is an academic convention on fantasy in a poolside hotel in Florida. And Steve Erickson asked me to go. And I was supposed to be on a panel with Steve Erickson and Stephen Donaldson. And, yeah, instead I'm excitedly responding, oh, my God, there's toilet paper in Sainsbury's on what? <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember uh, I remember you telling me about that when I originally reached out to you about being on the podcast. And uh, like I, I had I had screenshotted to talk to you about your time with Steven Erickson and, yes. and, and, and Steve Donaldson. And, uh, and I was like, oh, my gosh, she's going to be so upset now if that gets brought up. <laughs> oh, no, no, I mean, I was just, oh, God, I was just heartbroken. I mean, oh, it was like that was I was looking forward to that more than anything. And um, Steve Erickson sort of asked me if I wanted to invited me. And we were, the panel was just going to be called, it was just called Writing Fantasy. And it was me, Steve Erickson and Stephen Donaldson talking about how we write fantasy, basically what we, why we write the way we write and like reading, we're all going to read a passage from our books and talk about, you know, why that 
what what we think that that passage, why we like that passage and what we think that's doing in terms of writing. And basically it was going to be like, I was going to be giving a masterclass in how to write fantasy alongside Stephen Erickson and Stephen Donaldson in the Florida Sun. And then I was going to go and lie on a sun lounger next to a pool in right. the Florida sunshine <laughs> and Stephen Erickson sit down. And, 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 now, and now you're stuck at home and you're allowed to go out once like a dog. <laughs> yeah. Let's go out once a day for exercise, but we're not allowed to drive anywhere. The police have oh. stopped putting up roadblocks to stop people driving around unless they absolutely have to. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Yeah. How times change so quickly. <laughs> Goodness gracious. All right, well, let's, let's talk about something happy since we've got some of the depression out of the way. <laughs> um, so can you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? Can you tell me about um, you know growing up in London and, uh, I guess, going through school and how you got into writing? Okay, so, yeah. So actually I live just outside London. I okay. live, like, just in the commuting belt just outside London, um, kind of greater London. Um, and, yeah, no, I – um I mean, I got into writing. I've always written. My dad writes um, the website Great Works. It's my dad's website, and um, it sounds like nepotism. I want it, except I'm not because he actually rejected some of my other poems. <laughs> um, so yeah, my dad writes. He's he writes poetry. He in fact studied poetry at university at the University of Kiel. He studied under someone who had gone over to America and studied English, studied American literature under Pound. So he's going that very kind of high modernist tradition of um, sort of modernist and postmodernist poetry. And so he's always written, a lot of his friends are, right, obviously a poet. He's A lot of his friends are from the poetry world. One of his best friends is a painter and a playwright. So I just grew up with, a whole lot of people around me who wrote a lot of my other parents other friends are in publishing or in writing uh, another really close family friend set up a literature festival so I always wrote but then I stopped writing for a long time I've talked about this before um I sort of stopped writing in my late teens early 20s I had some really catastrophic relationships really massive personal issues and I stopped writing completely and then it, so I wrote a couple of poems that were my dad published and several that he didn't. I wrote this, I was, I wrote an article for the 14 Times. I was cover article for the 14 Times. I wrote this article, a fantastic article I'm so proud of still about, which argued that Madame Blavatsky, founder of the Theosophical Society, was actually far more so, and Eric von Daniken, as in alien, um, Egyptian gods are actually aliens, um, arguing that they are actually much more scientifically rational than uh, Richard Dawkins, which I was really proud of. Um, <laughs> and it's an argument I still stand by that Eric von Däniken is much more a scientific rationalist than Richard Dawkins. Um, but I didn't write any fiction since, I hadn't written any fiction, science fiction since I was probably about 18 or 19. And then one day in my 30s, I started writing, and a year later, I'd written The Court of Broken Knives. Wow. And yeah, <laughs> I can't really account for it at all. It was quite extraordinary. I gotcha. Um, so uh, I guess prior to uh, maybe writing and maybe even in between, uh, you know, you're beginning to write and then taking a break and coming back to it. What is, uh, I guess, what's the oddest job you've ever had? Oh my goodness. So I've had very few jobs. Um, 
I was lucky enough I didn't need to work through school or university at all. My parents supported me. And then, so the only jobs I've ever had are basically the jobs that are listed in my biography. I um, apart, and also I worked in a sandwich shop for two months, for a month before I quit because it was just the most ghastly job in the world. Um, I did data entry for about two weeks, and um, and yeah, and then, and then I taught English literature. I taught English literature seminars while I was doing my PhD in English literature. And then I went straight into the civil service and became a petty bureaucrat. And I did some I did some modelling. I got paid to do a bit of modelling. Although, I mean, we're not exactly talking big league modelling here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but those are the only... I'm afraid I've had no interesting jobs at all because um, I have had very few jobs in my life. I've been a civil servant and that's about it, basically. I gotcha. Um, Being a servant is a pretty mad job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Uh, and, uh, okay, so obviously I'm pulling this back out from your uh, biography as well. Tell me about your unusual shoe collection. I know I've seen oh. pictures of uh, your different boots and heels and so forth that you've worn at conventions, but kind of how did that start and how has it grown? Oh, goodness. So, I mean, it started from, I mean, the whole fetish modeling things and things. So I was sort of heavily in the goth scene and a huge collection of really stupid goth boots and shoes. I've got my, I remember really clearly going with my mum to get my first pair of ridiculous shoes when I was about, I think I was 15 and we went to a shop called Ad Hoc, which is on was on Kensington Church Street, which if anyone who was on the goth scene in the late 90s will know, was like this amazing, um, amazing shoe shop Kensington Market and ad hoc, but these sort of the goth mecca for clothing. And I've had this pair of black winkle pickers to let her heels with little the buck with little buckles at the side. The buckles were shaped like bats. And they were like my first pair of adult shoes basically from going from wearing school shoes to these little boots. And yeah, so I've just always had ridiculous, ridiculous shoes. And then it just became a thing at cons. I started wearing just a pair. I just wore a pair of really cool shoes to mm -hmm. a, to my to a con really early on, and the shoes just became a thing. I took like people just noticing the shoes. So then it got this thing where, when I started getting known, people were kind of coming up to me and saying, looking at my shoes and checking out what shoes I was wearing. And then people started saying things like they were disappointed because my shoes weren't as cool as the shoes I'd worn the last time they'd seen me, or they were, I was wearing the same pair of shoes they'd seen, I'd worn the last time they'd seen me. And so I had to go and so I had to get more and more and more shoes. It's getting ridiculous now because <laughs> people are kind of expecting the shoes to get more and more outrageous every time they see me because they kind of, if I wear the same pair of shoes or I wear a slightly more boring pair of shoes, I get told off now. So I've had really, really insane things like um, Joe Fletcher, as in Joe Fletcher books, um, apologising because the first thing she does when she sees me is looks at my feet and looks at my shoes <laughs> and just mad things like, um, so Cat Rambo tweeted a picture of my shoes and she came up to me really excited. She was like, no, no, your, your shoes have got 200 likes on Twitter. I was like, yeah. She's like, isn't that exciting? It's like, no, that happens all the time. And she's looking at me like, you don't think it's weird that your shoes have had 200 likes on Twitter from her Twitter account? It's like, no, that, that's <laughs> And then, um, oh, God, this, last summer, um, I was at 
well, I was at um, Dublin in, for Worldcon. And so this is where I first met Stephen Erickson. And I'd, um, I'd sort of, I'd noticed, I Steve Erickson, someone had said, oh, Stephen Erickson's around in the dealer room. And I noticed him in the dealer room. And I, I stalked him across the whole of the dealer room. And I finally managed to corner him and got talking to him. And we were having this really, really fantastic conversation. And he heard of my book and it was amazing. And then this woman came up and she didn't have a clue who I was, which was fair enough. She didn't have a clue who Steve Erickson was either. And she basically came up to me. She barged Steve Erickson out of the way. She was really was like, just get out of the way, old man. And I was like, your shoes. I'm sorry about your shoes. And I was standing there like, I was talking to Steve Erickson. <laughs> And you've just physically shoved Steve Erickson out of the way <laughs> because you want to know where I got my shoes from. Right. <laughs> and Steve Erickson was standing there just like, what? <laughs> so, so that's what you're saying is your shoes need their own Instagram. They do. They, I think there are more photographs of my feet on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook than there are my face, I think, actually. Um, <laughs> well, it can kind of go back into your modeling career, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah, um, actually, I um, I had to Google myself because it was the quickest way to find a particular tweet. So I started entering. You know, some, I mean, if you're trying to find a particular review or something on Google, sometimes putting in your name and then a particular random keyword is the easiest way to find it. So I started filling in my own name in Google. And I started feeling I got as far as Anna Smith. I got Anna Smith Spark, and the third was option that Google suggested was Anna Smith Spark model. And I know who it was. It was who's been googling that obsessively as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to see what comes up now because I, I put I put in Anna Smith Spark, and of course, all it brings up for me right now is social media, but. Yeah, like uh, if I if you do because if you do Anna Smith, it just brings up photography. So apparently, I know an Anna Smith that does photography. But <laughs> it used to come up, but I, I don't think in many of my modeling shots are up on. They were all kind of for small, like small little um, dodgy fetish things. So I don't think they're on the internet. I don't think they're findable at all. I don't think if you do, I don't think if you Google Anna Smith about model, you get anything. But um, <laughs> wait, but yeah, hold on, hold on. I just I just did it in a different uh, different. Uh, browser it brought up model it's number yes. uh, it's number seven on here <laughs> yes it was number three for a while and i'm pretty certain i know who that was <laughs> unfortunately no shoes i don't see any shoes pictures uh that come up as images i'm i'm, I'm very disappointed <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness oh that's that's too funny yeah i uh you heard it here on the podcast. If she starts a shoe Instagram, it's, it all started here. <laughs> um, so kind of talking about Erickson a little bit, um, tell me a little bit about uh, some of your writing influences. You said Erickson and Backer and a few more. Um, I guess uh, why them? Uh, kind of what, what got you influenced by them? Like is it, is it their writing in particular? Is it the stories they create? Is it everything? I think it's the kind of mythicness of it. So, um, so I'm, I was absolutely obsessed with Greek mythology. I've read a huge number of historical novels about ancient Greece, huge number of Greek uh, um, retellings of the Greek myths, and particularly the Tale of Troy. I've read endless novels about the Tale of Troy. And I think kind of when you've read, when I was a teenager, and I, you know, I've read so many versions of the Tale of Troy and so many versions of um, 
also of um, the um, sort of Alexander stories about Alexander the Great and about Merlin and King Arthur. And then the illogical kind of thing seems to, was that kind of realisation that what Baker and Erickson have both done is, is create their own mythology. Mm-hmm. So it's not that that total immersiveness in their world, that they're not, they're kind of not writing, they're doing what Tolkien's doing. They're not writing a kind of fantasy thriller. Mm-hmm. They're writing a historical novel based on a mythology and a culture. It's just that they've made that mythology and that culture up. It's mm-hmm. so much bigger and vaster and weirder than a lot of sort of his lot of kind of fantasy is very it's got that kind of thrillery good you know the kind of it's all about the plot and the the reveals and but what Baker and Erickson are both doing is something that is much deeper and more complicated where they've created a whole world their world building is so deep and they're yeah, they're just they're writing, they're writing a, a sort of writing historical fi- historical fiction in another in a secondary world setting essentially, right. and that kind of is what I sort of see myself as having done. But that just that kind of you know that's that's one of the things I absolutely love about those books. They're so so immersive. They're so those worlds are so hugely realised. They're so complex. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the story, it's just about absolutely being transported to those worlds, which is which is why I love them, why I think they're both such such wonderful, wonderful wonderful, wonderful authors. And Baker is absolutely you know, he's a genius and what he's doing is just astonishing. I, I've never met Baker. I um I want I queued for 45 minutes to be the first person. There was a small group of us who queued. We've queued for 45 minutes outside a room at Worldcon San Jose to be the first people in to be at the front in a, the panel that Baker was supposed to be doing. And then he didn't turn up. He had, it turned out he wasn't at the con. He hadn't been able to make it. And I was absolutely crushed, but also kind of relieved because he's one of the few people I'd be one of the few authors I'd be absolutely terrified to meet. Um, <laughs> I was kind of, I mean, I was overawed to meet Steve Erickson, but after I'd got over my excitement, he was just like, are you all right? Because I'm standing there, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm not Steve Erickson. <laughs> but after I got over that, actually, you know, we were sort of chatting and he's a wonderful person and I love talking to him and we had a fantastic, we actually went, we went to Library Tarpits and, because we I met him at a convention in Los Angeles in the autumn and we, again and we went over went to La Brea Tarpets and that was amazing when we're talking about we're having a really fantastic professional chat and also because we're both interested in ancient history obviously and stuff but also but that Baker I wouldn't I don't know I don't feel I'd be able to have that kind of peer-to-peer conversation at all I think I'd just be like I can't speak <laughs> and then run away and um, I mean the only other person I think I'd feel like that meeting is um, M. John Harrison who wrote the Viriconium series which is a totally under, uh, massively overlooked um, I'm not even sure it's available in the United States um, it is a glance masterworks but very very few people have heard of it and it's um, it's actually rather like 
the uh, the Prince of Nothing and that it's it's both Baker and M. John Harrison are responding to Tolkien and they were writing novels. They're write, they're writing a kind of complex political response to the Lord of the Rings and kind of exploring in the same, actually probably in the same way that I'm doing, exploring a lot of the stuff that's in the Lord of the Rings that is politically more problematic. Mm. And both, but then they're both also just, just, I mean, their prose, M. John Harrison is, his, he's a master stylist. His prose is quite astonishing. His, um, they're both just truly astonishing authors. They're, they're, their literary style, their the their use of language is quite astonishing, both of them. And I and that that's what I really venerate. That's that's what matters most to me is the prose. And those they are you know, they are just towering, just gigantic figures in terms of their prose and in fantasy. Both hugely overlooked, probably partly because of that, because what the writing is incredibly literary and complicated, but my God, they're just astonishing. Yeah. All right, John. Um, where do you typically find yourself writing? Do you, well, do you have a home office? I mean, obviously now it's a little different, but before before COVID, where did you find yourself writing? Okay, so um, so I still work. I work three days a week, and I actually I really like. Well, I wouldn't say I like working. In some ways, I'd love to not work, but actually. I like having another intellectual world that I live in that's totally different to my writing world. And I like, I like being around people. I like, we had this, I like the completely insane conversations that you get when you're around people that I think novelists often lose when you become a professional novelist. It's quite easy to lose contact with actually how people speak and actually what people think about and just the kind of total insanity and strange than fiction quality that work has and that, that reality has. But anyway, but um, so one of the best places I get writing down actually is in the train in and out of work in the days I go into work because I, I commute in central London and I love that time on the train because it, it's kind of like the Pomodoro technique. You have this period of time when I'm on a train, I don't have any distractions because I'm not logged onto Wi-Fi or anything. And if I don't write, then when the train gets in, that time would have been wasted. So I've got that period of time that then that stops I have to make use of and that I find really a good time to write um I do work at home I write at home two days a week which is great but because I've got that huge span of hours stretching ahead of me I tend to just boss around for ages and not get as much done and then I try and write in the evening so um but I don't have a desk or anything I um I just write on my dining table I write in bed I don't have anywhere stable to write I just have a laptop and I just have to open it up wherever I am I do like going out to coffee shops to, well I did before when I could go out of the house and when coffee shops were open right. I did like going out to coffee shops to write but that that can get quite expensive I used to have this fantastic coffee shop I used to write in where I wrote loads of the of the cord broken knives in um and they'd sometimes give me free cake or they'd let me choose the music um occasionally it used to just be me and a couple of so rather regulars and I'd get to choose the music and then they'd give me some free cake and some free coffee. Or if I bought one coffee, then they'd give me another two free. And, um, it's actually the, um, 
the lodging house, the house, the lodging house, the um, the four corners on the street of the south, run by three sisters, each more beautiful and friendly than the last in the quarter broken knives, is in fact Coffee Corner on South Street, which was which is the coffee which is the coffee shop I did a lot of the writing in where they gave me free coffee, which was genuinely it was run by three sisters, each be more beautiful and more friendly than the last, <laughs> and I just realised I had to put it in the book, and the whole thing just works because. South Street, the street of the South, the whole thing just works beautifully. It's just such a fantastic image, these three beautiful sisters. So, yeah, so okay. it's, it's a real place. Well, it's unfortunately it's closed down now because it was a real place, but it's closed down now. But, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, the next question I got for you is uh, in regard to your writing process. So can you tell me a little bit about the process you uh, took or – um, you know, used in order to write the Empires of Dust trilogy? Like, did you plot it all out? Did you write some of it on the fly? Um, or was it a mix of both? Okay, so when I started writing The Court of Broken Knives, I didn't even know I was writing a novel. Um, I just started writing a scene, which is what turned into Chapter 2 of The Court of Broken Knives. It's the scene of men in a desert and I didn't know it was, I had no idea what I was writing. I was just writing the scene of there was violence. And then I wrote that that line, which um, they, they didn't, the dragon was on them before they'd even had time to draw their swords. And it's like, okay, so there's a dragon in this. And then I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know who they were and any of the characters. I had no idea who they were, what they were doing. And then they were heading towards a city, and the city was has always been in my head. So lost is every fancy city I've ever loved, but I had no idea why they were going there. There was a young man who was strange and who was feeling things that very much reflect the way I feel about things. And he was the central character, I think, of every story I told myself when a child. When I was a child, he is very Marith. He's very kind of central to me. He's very, he is, he's my animus, I guess. He's he's a part of me. But I had no idea who he was or what his secrets were or what was going on with him. And this whole story was just revealed to me as they were traveling. The world they were traveling through was opened up to me. And as Orhan was moving around so lost, the city was just opening itself up to me and I was learning more about the city. And then, um, so the moment when Marith finally has the kind of very obviously signposted reveal of who he is, I mean, that, yeah, I kind of went back and signposted it later to make it more kind of obvious, but that reveal was a reveal to me as much as it was, I had no idea who he was. And then, so it wasn't until I'd nearly finished the Court of Broken Knives that actually I really understood, suddenly it was like this understanding of, oh my God, this is what the story's about, isn't it? This is the story. This is what he's doing. And then the whole trilogy just appeared. Then it was clear that I knew the whole story. I knew exactly where it was going to go. I knew it was going to end. I had the ending written. I knew where the whole thing went. But then I had to kind of write books two and three to then get to that point mm-hmm. so I knew some of the stuff that was going to happen so I kind of had gone from having this world that 
I was just, I had no, I had done no, I did no world building. I had no idea what was going on. I was just discovering this whole thing. And then with books two and three, I was very much in, I had a world, I had the overarching story of Marit's life and you were yet to go, but I had to make it two more interesting books worth of stories. And kind of, so it was that kind of, um, Peter Newman actually has this lovely description of your, you begin the book standing on one mountaintop and you can see across to the next mountaintop and where you know where you need to get to. But the kind of journey down between the two mountaintops, you don't really know what's down there. You you just know where you're going. And there are all kinds of weird shortcuts and diversions and false trails and weird things you discover. But then eventually you will eventually get to the place you're going to. And that was it was really like that. It was kind of I've never I never do any world building. I haven't world built for any well, I mean, all the stuff I've written has been set in this world, but I don't do world building at all. I don't, the characters, they just appear and I don't, I find their names and at that point they just, they just suddenly exist. So the whole thing is kind of very um, totally organic, but within this kind of conceptual framework of what I knew where, it, I knew the kind of big, huge overarching framework. But yeah, but it was very totally organic process. It always is. And that's why I hate writing short stories because um, I've written quite a few short stories. And sometimes they're fun because they are me unpacking a little throwaway. A couple of them were little throwaway lines in the books. And then I sort of realised that there must, you know, I just wrote a story based around that little one throwaway line. But they're quite hard because because I don't know where I'm going. So with the short stories, like, I don't know where I'm going, don't know where I'm going, don't know where I'm going. Oh, um, I've run out of words. So that is quite difficult. <laughs> because, just, but then, I mean, my short stories aren't exactly kind of, they're not vastly complicated plotting, it's all kind of plotted things. They're, um, they're definitely kind of very organic as well. But yeah, no, it's a totally organic writing process. I don't, I don't redraft either. I mean, I, um, I don't have kind of second and third drafts and beta readers and stuff. I um, I write it and I will delete a huge amount of stuff. I will ruthlessly delete huge amounts and shift huge amounts around and get rid of huge amounts of stuff. I've got huge files of stuff I've shipped, just cut completely. But I don't, but once it's then written, I then, that's it, it's done. It doesn't get seen by anyone until it goes to the editor or the agent. It, it's It's just done, it's kind of... So a lot of um, a lot of the stuff in the books is actually as it was just when I wrote it down on paper for the first time. It might be in a different place, or it might be it might have been gone over eight times because I all spent hours and like I'll spend days agonising about a particular sentence, or it might have been absolutely just the raw words I wrote down at the time and been totally unchanged ever since. I gotcha. Um, okay, so Vampires of Dust Trilogy, you've got The Court of Broken Knives, The Tower of Living and Dying, and The House of Sacrifice. So these were released between 2017 and 2019. So I want you to sell me, like I've never read the series before, I want you to sell me on the series. You think you can do that? Yeah, I mean, um, so the most, most wonderful description of the books was a description I read that was up in Waterstones in Gower Street in London, which said, Joe jo Abercrombie meets Leonard Cohen in a particularly filthy public toilet, which 
just that just sums it up so perfectly. They're um, they're they are grimdark. They are extremely violent. They are compared. They have often been compared with Abercrombie. the The first chapter in the Court of Broken Knives is often compared to the kind of famous uh, beginning, the the Logan Nine Figures beginning in Abercrombie. Um, they are extremely violent. They are also intensely romantic and lyrical. I do get accused of nihilism a lot, and I probably am intensely. I am profoundly nihilistic. But there's a huge amount of romance as well, and not just romance as in between two characters, although there is a lot of love and romance and the importance of love and loving the people around you and loving the, and having love in your life. Mm-hmm. But romance in the sense of I'm a profound romantic. That's why I love fantasy. I love weird, beautiful worlds and wonder and creating something which is romantic in the in the class in the old sense of the word romantic, as in you know romantic landscapes, romantic poetry, romances in dragons and knights and magic and princesses and enchantments. So they are full of that. They are high fantasy, grimdark. They are full of really low scatological humour. They're full of high humour as well, I like to think. There's all kinds of complicated literary references in there, there are witty references in there, which absolutely no one has ever picked up on. But they're full of um, knob jokes and tip jokes. I think I have, I'm pretty certain I have the distinction of being the only high fantasy writer to create multiple invented languages and then have the word to come in multiple convented languages <laughs> and to have, a multiple inve- have one lang- invented language which I invented purely to be able to write dirty poetry in um, <laughs> oh and um, they are also intensely political they um oh I have a plague in them book two has um in fact, has um, is a bit of a guide, a guide, civil servant's guide to how to manage your community or society in the events of total break, social breakdown caused by a plague. So there we go. Um, I predicted everything that's going on at the moment right down to the travel ban. Um, they have political stuff in them. They have been described as masterwork, a masterwork of dark fantasy. They've been described as political ne- politically necessary. They have been described as literary Game of Thrones. They have been described as... The most important, um, I have been described as, I think, the, what was it, the greatest prose writer in this genre, um, greatest writer and uh, prose, um, the greatest prose novelist in the fantasy genre working at this time. Um, yeah, they've had some damn good reviews. Um, <laughs> don't read them if you're just looking for a really light, quick, um, simple, good versus evil. Just don't need to think about it wrong because that is not what they are. And they're not YA either. They are not so, 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 so not YA. Definitely not YA. No. <laughs> they're the furthest That's thing just, from it. <laughs> I had this massive problem when they were first published because people assumed, because there's all this sort of stuff in the blurb about a young man, a mysterious young man, and the, the title, The Court of Broken Knives, sounds quite, it does sound quite YA-ish. And because I'm a woman... People assumed it must, a lot of people assumed it must be YA, romantic teenage fantasy, which it really isn't. So um, I had some, if you look on Goodreads, my first page of my reviews is basically a whole load of YA reviewers just being like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> just really, really bad. It was awful. <laughs> they just didn't know if yeah. they were getting in, did they? <laughs> if you rate, basically, if you, um, the highest praise I've had is that various people have said that, you know, they've read, once you read R. Scott Baker, there were very few other fancy novel novelists that you could possibly want to read because nothing else compares. And I'm one of the only, I'm one of the other people that's always brought up as um, kind of one of the few other authors that people feel is up there with Baker. And that, um, that for me is, I mean, that's just kind of, that's everything that's like that. And the descriptions of being a masterwork. I mean, I, there's no work. I just, I, I cannot say how it feels to have those things said about me. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of have to ignore the fluff and enjoy those high praises. <laughs> yes. Is that mean? No, you know, I mean, I get, um, no, I mean, I come, I'm kind of proud of the, the kind of, you know, it's not, they are very Marmite books. I know they're really Marmite books. Um, do you have Marmite this expression in Alabama? Do you know what I, I mean? mean I know what Marmite is. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure we can find it somewhere, but yes. <laughs> it's not something yes, the, people typically buy. <laughs> yes, the Marmite, the expression of Marmite, you know, it's either you love it or you hate it. There is right. no, no one ever, very few people kind of say, you know, they're all right. They're quite entertaining. They're just kind of, you know, they're quite fun if you're bored. People either love them or loathe them. Right. And that for me is kind of, that's kind of, that that's that's the way it should be. That's the sign for me of a really good book. You know, um, I don't want them just to be kind of forgettable, kind of mild entertainment. I want them to be something more, and that seems to be what they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would I would agree. Um, I mean, it's I, I remember you know cracking up in court for the first time, and just you know based on the first chapter, which I'll have. Uh, I'll have a little excerpt at the end of the podcast where uh, Colin Mace will be narrating, which he did a phenomenal job on the on the trilogy. Uh, I loved his narration. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've had a chance to listen to a little bit of it, but he's uh, he's absolutely fantastic. I haven't been able to. I can't listen to it. Actually, I cannot listen. Oh, you can't to listen to your own book. <laughs> it does. It just so because I read. I do readings a lot. I mm. again, my dad reads. My dad reads poetry a lot. Poets. Poets will read their poetry at a drop of a hat. It astonishes my dad that authors don't read all the time. So um, I have read, I read, I do a lot of readings, and so I can't, I can hear it so clearly in my head, and I can hear, I hear the words so strongly, and I'm writing them, and I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that the thought of hearing someone else read them is just painful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, well, I will say for you, he did a great job. So I'm, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it sounds different in your mind, but. Because uh, he also did uh, Ed McDonald's um, Ravensmart trilogy, um, which I, I, I kind of compare you know, some of Ed's uh, prose to yours as well as a little bit of Mark Lawrence, which kind of leads me to the next thing. So your prose style is really unlike anything I've ever read. And the only authors I have come across that even remotely compare would be Ed McDonald and Mark Lawrence. Uh, what do you think makes your style so different and why does it appeal to me so much? um so it's just the way i write it just that is just the way it's that i i don't know i mean i don't kind of i don't mean the sort of i i'm explaining this incredibly badly i don't know it was was a loop it was a loop through i mean i read a lot 
I read an awful lot of different books. I read a huge, eclectic um, range of authors. I certainly don't just read fantasy. Um, and I guess I'm kind of had a huge different influences of kind of, yeah, of all very literary writers and the poetry stuff. I mean, the poetry obviously comes through a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I've had massive, you know, I've had the incredible privilege of seeing Fiona Shaw perform The Wasteland. Um, I've had people, I've heard people sing Beowulf to me in the original Old English. I've had people sing bits of the Iliad to me in the original Greek. I've heard people sing um, bits of of, uh, Chaucer in the original Middle English. Um, I've had a lot of poetry read and recited to me. I guess that kind of, just sort of that, it's just something of that kind of very literary prose is something I've always had around me. And actually, I mean, there are a lot of, an author who's had a huge influence on me is an author called, um, oh my goodness, now her name has just gone completely from, Edna O'Brien, The Country Girls Trilogy, which is a beautiful, beautiful series of novels about two girls growing up in rural Ireland. And her prose is just really, really rich, the way she talks about the landscape and the Irish landscape and the, the way her, these, the two girls' lives are really rooted in the, the what's happening in the landscape is so closely linked to their lives. And um, Elizabeth Smarts by Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept. I read that when I was a teenager. And that just, that's an absolutely, that's just, you know, that's quite an astonishing book. And, um, and a huge influence on me again from when I was a teenager is James Elroy, his L.A. Noir Quartet, um, I mean, they are famously essentially unreadable. By the time you get to White Jazz, the fourth one in the quartet, it is essentially unreadable. It's um, it is just kind of stato bursts of just white noise, white noise words, just conveying total violence. Their stories about the um, the film. Uh, LA Confidential was based on the, I think it's the second of their quartet, and it's incredibly toned down. The film is nothing compared to the books. The books are astonishingly violent, astonishingly amoral. Again, a completely bleak, but also profoundly romantic. But they're just absolutely in the mind of people who are just living in a world that is absolutely saturated with drugs and violence and total amorality and just absolutely entering into the thought processes and the kind of physical experience of living like that in the kind of heat, in the heat of LA and the kind of sense, this kind of physical sense of corruption. And those books had a really profound influence on me reading them when I was a teenager. And um, I mean, I read sort of Lovecraft and Hope Hodgson when I was quite young Um I just was incredibly lucky to be exposed to the most incredible, incredible literature when I was when I was growing up. Um, my major exposure to introduction to fantasy was Tolkien, was um, children's fantasy was Alan Garner, Tolkien, and um, people like Gene Wolfe, things like Gene Wolfe, The Book of the New Sun, 
so that for me was the kind of baseline for fantasy things like um m john harrison i was reading when i was a teenager so stuff like that for me is really the baseline for fantasy that kind of really really complex weird literary just using language to create a sense of weird fantastical otherness <laughs> and that so yeah so it's just something that i've just kind of that for me is what fantasy is and that's what I really look for in in good fantasy is kind of use of language to create a total sense of another world, a total immersion in another world. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, because uh, like I said, I, I had read a little bit of Lawrence, um, like his uh, Broken Empire and uh, Red Queen's War and stuff, and he uses um, – prose in a different way. I mean, you know, he tells the story, you know, the fantasy story, but he has like little tidbits, like little sections that he'll just go like into like a deep literary prose for like a paragraph or two. And that, you know, but I feel like empires of dust, like the entire trilogy was written like that. It wasn't just like little sections, you know, it's everything is just so detailed and, um, I think I think in one of my reviews I had written that uh, your prose is like uh, a vintage red, uh, oh. full full of razor blades. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, yeah, and that is it is what matters to me. If you actually boil the story down, the Empress of Dust story down, it is an incredibly simple story. Mm-hmm. It's just that kind of the prose and the what it, the questions it's trying to ask you and the language it's trying to convey that in it's um i mean another i guess another huge influence is sort of much more recently is someone like hilary mantel or uh, mary renault who similarly are telling actually you know mary renault's alexander trilogy it's it's no it has no plot it's a man's life a man's life has very little plot it's um it's not got that kind of complicated revealing what's going on here it's just the story of a man's life or um uh and that kind of taking that and it's all about the prose and the questions that you're being asked about what this is making you think about your own life and what this is making you think about your understanding of history and your understanding of the story that's being told here and how this might have implications for your own life and for the time you're living in and that again that that's what matters to me or just that kind of weirdness if you take something if you take Gene Wolfe you take the book of the new sun or um I mean I've just been rereading Moorcock's um history of the high history of the rune stuff which I was which is it was intensely political and incredibly political and incredibly important a couple of months ago because it's all about it's about the, the dark empire is Great Britain and it's so for Brexit and everything it's like it's just so incredibly it was incredibly contemporary about two months ago when Brexit was what we had to worry about in this country rather than plague but um, again just the kind of incredible weird beauty of what's going on in that again it's incredibly simple story mm-hmm. and then the characters in the high history of the rune staff are incredibly one-dimensional but the language is just so impossibly rich and strange and weird and you get these weird images thrown out and these weird passages and these descriptions of what's going on and it's just mesmerizing and it is a kind of just 
totally taking you into another reality and making you really think about, I guess, kind of see the weirdness in your own world as well. Um, the way that Mark Moorcox, the way he's creating the city, you know, the city of Lundra or the Camargue are so bizarre. And it makes you start thinking about how bizarre your own life, how your own reality is and how it's almost kind of more real than realism because it's pointing up to the absolute incredible weirdness of reality. And that, yeah, I know that, that for me is what fantasy is. That really is what, what matters to me. And I just love describing things as well. I love description. I love describing landscapes and weather and the effect of light. And I just, spend my whole I would think about it all the time I when I'm walking around and I see like the light on a tree or something I'm just really I want to just immediately stop and write it down or say it I just want to shout aloud the description of it that's coming into my head and I'm, I'm really lucky again because kind of again I mean I know some people I'm really I've sort of some people I know have been really kind of like what on earth is this book doing with all these great long descriptions of the weather and um, <laughs> landscape descriptions? Um, but yeah, that's that's what I just I loved. I love writing those descriptions. I mean, you you also write a lot of descriptions of men bleeding out on the ground and <laughs> men being burned alive. You know. You know the the normal stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, from, um, but again, what's int- what I what I what interests me when I'm writing those descriptions isn't the kind of very technical stuff about what what's going on. I I could never write one of those very technical kind of descriptions of different sword strokes and that kind of you know different bodily movements and the kind of technical description that someone who's actually done. Sort, sort of done sword fighting, he's done HEMA, he's done reenactment rights. Um, so people like um, Miles Cameron, who writes, who have very technical knowledge about this kind of thing, I could never write anything like that because mm. I just can't, I can't even begin to imagine it. I'm so clumsy. I'm not at all well coordinated. I could never actually kind of write that kind of thing. But um, what interests me is writing the visceral, the vis the physicality of it, the the sense of it, the emotional sense, the aesthetic sense, the physical sense of what's going, what one might be experiencing actually in that situation rather than the technicalities of what you're experiencing. So I do, people often say my fight scenes are very cinematic and that's because I'm what interested in is that kind of cinematic experience of, of being immersed in the aesthetics of it and what is inspiring you to feel. So, um, some of the the battles, like the um, the great the sort of opening scene of the film with the Fellowship of the Ring, the battle at the at Mount Doom, mm-hmm. or um, there's quite an astonishing a television series called 1864, which is about a totally now completely overlooked war in Europe, uh, the um, Danish-Prussian War. And there's, it's the first war where there's really serious use of trench warfare and munitions. There's this absolutely incredible scene in that where the Germans loose howitzers over onto the onto the Danish defensive lines, and it's the it's, it's the first battle that howitzers were used on mass. And it, it's at night. You get this account down to the clock strike the clock striking two when they're going to launch it, and then you just get this. The sky is silver 
with these howitzer shells going over and it's it's like it's like it's like fourth of july fireworks it's the most beautiful thing the sky is just lit up silver but you know what what this is this is the most beautiful thing you could imagine it's the most amazing fireworks that you'd ever imagine and then it strikes and the Danish line is obliterated. Right. And then you have this incredible scenes of people in the Danish trenches just being annihilated by how it's a fire. And then eventually, after, well, sometime after dawn, the how it's a pounding stops. And we have this brief lull before the German troops then go in over the top. And it and it's to, this is totally based on fact, it's based on multiple witness accounts at the time. Multiple people in the Danish lines noticed a lock, a skylock overhead singing. So having had this incredible scenes of first this white light and then these horrific scenes of explosions in the dark and chaos and it's it's dark and people are dying and everything's exploding and people don't know what's going on. You then have this scene of this people looking up. You have this early morning light and the pale blue sky and there's a single lark hovering, singing, and otherwise it's silence. And that is what I'm trying to write, that that emotional and aesthetic sense of that, all those different experiences and that, just the kind of beauty and utter horror of it. And that that's what I want to write when I'm writing fight scenes. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to convey the technicalities of it because I, I don't have the language for that. I don't have the ability to write that. Wow. Um, so would you mind reading an, ed- an excerpt from uh, book three in your series, The House of Sacrifice? Yes, I will read. And I'm, I will read. I have just made these sudden spontaneous decisions to read one of the opening fight scenes because it is kind of what I was talking about just now about why I write the kind of fight scenes I do and why I write the kind of pro- and where, where my prose is coming from. And, yeah, all the kind of stuff I was just talking about. So so I'm going to read. This is from Chapter 2 of The House of Sacrifice. And it is, we are attacking, we are storming a city. But that's all the context I'm going to give you. (laughs) Where's Chapter 2? You don't get much context. (laughs) All his vision was silver, slurred like being underwater, all the movements just a moment too slow, cool and soft around him. It felt like Thalia's skin, a hundred sword blades meeting his sword stroke, a hundred sword blades cutting at him, grass-green eyes closed and opened, all staring, sad, sad eyes. They looked like the eyes of an old man. Marith thought it, cut at it. A sword and a hand fell away and another grew up in their place. He cut it again, again a hand falling, again another hand growing up. Sword struck back at him, glanced off him, warded them off, didn't feel them. And then a blade got down into the meat of his shoulder and a wound opened up, dry and ashy, and he hurt. He lunged deep into his body, the centre of it, white silver light swallowing him. His horse was screaming. His horse was dead. It reared and kicked at the light surrounding it. Gilded hooves coming down. The grass-green eyes opened and closed. 
Countless silver eyes stabbed at him. Bastard, stupid thing. Twice now it had beaten him. The battering ram thudded against the terrine gateway. Trumpets rang for an assault on the walls. Voices shouting, ladders, ladders, up there, get moving. Men rushed up them, fast with the knives clutched in their teeth. A ladder falling backwards, soldiers falling from it, diring. Spiralling down off the ladders, screaming in a cloud of red-hot sand. Snow falling over everything. White snow, black ash, silver fire, red blood. Snowflakes white and silent and soft as feathers. Muting the sound. Memory of snow falling the day he killed his father. White blossom falling like snowflakes as they cheered him, entering the cities of half the world. Thalia would like the snow, he thought. The night god wounded him, hard, raw pain in his arm, making him almost drop his sword, Joy. He cut off hands and swords, and they grew up stronger, swords stabbing. Grass-green eyes staring at him. Twice this damned thing had defeated him. Twice his soldiers had been forced back. Fire hissing on the bloody ox hides. The ram beginning to burn. Men dying, men, men rushing up to replace them, pounding it hard at the gate. The ladders trembling, swaying like bird legs. Another going over. Soldiers falling. One soldier falling was burning. Fell like a star. Soldiers stumbling, blinded by red-hot sand. Ossan's voice shouting furiously, Break it, break it, destroy it now! Amra, Amra! White fire washing over the battering ram. The oxhide smoking, burning, men dying, men rushing up wounded and bloody to take their place. The dead horse reared and kicked at the light god. Knife-sharp gilded hooves. Marith cut and hacked at the light god. Swords falling, swords cutting him. Grass-green eyes opened and closed. The gate, sh gate shattered open beneath the beating of the ram. The army of Anrath surged forward trampling their dying and dead, fighting each other to be first through the gate. Trumpet ran out triumphant, cheering, screaming, Breach! Breach! Amra! Breach! Breach! The light god roared in fury, swords and hands ripping at Marith. Marith smashed back at it. Shouts and cheering turned to screams as the machine on the walls showered down burning sand. The shadows rose up to destroy it. A bright white flash of mage fire sent them burning back. The machine loosed more sand, shimmering as it came down. Breach, breach, in, now, in, in! The army of Anrath surging in through the gateway, through the shower of sand falling, through blasts of white and silver mage fire, through shuddering falling walls. Soldiers rushing up the ladders, up onto the battlements, trying to get to the war engines. Mage fire crashing over them, burning, more and more rushing up behind. Voices shouting the war song, death, death, death. Marith hacked at the light god, grass-green eyes staring at him, numberless hands and sword blades. 
swirling silver all around him, washing him cool and soft. He hacked like hacking at a tree trunk, ignored the sword wounds. Nothing could harm him. Remember that. They cut him and they hurt him, but there was nothing. Dry ash wounds, blood like rust, nothing to bleed, nothing to die. Like a dried up river, dry, dead dust, a famine. He slashed at the thing's shining light, cut it into pieces over and over, all the hands and the swords cutting him. Grass green eyes staring at him. He cut destroying them, hammering down his sword blade over and over and over and over. The dead horse reared and kicked at it, bit at it with yellow teeth, cut and cut and cut. A burst of light, white and silver, brighter than sunlight, the snow shining with every colour of the rainbow, light reflected in every soldier's eyes. Scream like glass and bells ringing, a thousand rushing shooting stars. White light, burning, white shining blazing sparks of fire, cut and cut and cut and cut. Screamed, screamed, gone. Twice it had defeated him. Third time lucky indeed. Marith drew his breath, patted his horse to thank it, charged after his soldiers through the ruins of the gate. King ruin, king death, such joy and such wonder, the one true perfect thing. Get chills. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for reading an excerpt. I, uh, I now have to go back and, <laughs> and get through the trilogy again. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, all right. So can you tell me, are you, are you working on anything right now? Um, yes, I'm finishing up a very strange book, which I genuinely have no idea what will happen to it because it is, intensely personal it is kind of it is very very literary intensely personal it is essentially um you know people often ask authors kind of which of your characters would you be or that kind of you know who would you be from your books um and i always jokingly say actually i'd be one of the peasants who dies in like the first i'd be one of the nameless soldiers that gets squashed in about line two of that extract because um i I could not survive in my world at all. But actually, so seriously, this is, in fact, what I'm basically writing is kind of me in that world. So it's completely, profoundly personal novel about my sense of myself as a woman, as a mother, as kind of someone juggling career, work and career and motherhood and all the kind of demands of being a woman with all those kind of multiple demands on my time in a complicated world in an epic fantasy setting. So I'm kind of describing it as it's, it's essentially rather like Elena Ferrante's um, Neapolitan novels, but rather than being set in a 
sort of post-war poverty-stricken Naples, it's set in an epic fantasy setting, or it's rather like Edna O'Brien's Country Girls trilogy, which is clearly very much Edna O'Brien's essentially her autobiography about herself as a woman, as a girl and then as a woman in um, very, very conservative Catholic rural Ireland. And this book is essentially a similar kind of absolutely personal, intense account of my identity as a woman. Just there's a big secondary world fantasy (laughs) battle stuff going on rather than post-war poverty-ridden Naples or Catholic Western Ireland. So I have no idea whether Elena Ferrante meets... I'm sure there are a couple of PTV people out there who, if you say it's Elena Ferrante meets Stephen Erickson, will say, oh, my God, that sounds like the book I've been dreaming for forever. (laughs) I'm sure there are a whole lot of other people who are going to say, what? You're what? No way. Um, Yeah, so I have no idea what will happen to it, whether it gets published, whether I self-publish it, but it will be published in one form or another because... I'm intensely proud of it. Okay. Well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely looking forward to anything you come out with. So, uh, so you, you've already, you've already got one reader. So, um, <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, in your, in your, in your quote unquote spare time, um, do you, do you have the opportunity to, to read, um, a lot of your spare time? And if you have, is there anything that you'd recommend to the audience? Oh goodness. Um, yeah, no, I read, yeah, no, I read a lot. I um, I couldn't, I can't sleep without reading for about at least half an hour, ideally an hour or two first. I have, I read a lot. I do read a lot. I read a lot more than I write. I writing is a pretty tiring process for me. I can't write for more than a couple of hours, mm-hmm. and then I just spend a lot of time reading. Um, books I'd really recommend. Um, goodness, new books. Um, so I always feel I have to recommend Mike Fletcher's books because they do not get the love they deserve at all. Mike is, he's, I've no idea what he thinks of me, but as far as I'm concerned, he's a very good friend of mine now. Um, I kind of forced him to be my friend after I read Beyond Redemption because I just felt I had to get to know this guy. And um, we do think in very similar ways. We get on very well. And his books are just, they are just amazing. Um, The Manifest Illusions books are just incredible. Uh, Swarm and Steel is I mean, my God, the, I just I, I hate him for that book because what he does with that book, how far he takes things and the, lo- the kind of logical conclusion he draws about the world in those books. I, ha- I hate him for those books because they're just, it's just swarms, it's just astonishing. Right. And his new, he's right, he is writing two new trilogies simultaneously. Yeah. I don't know how he's doing it, but they are both, um, they are both, incredible and i'm getting in a muddle about what they're even called because he's writing two trilogies simultaneously i uh, but um yeah city of sacrifice is just amazing mm-hmm. um and that again that's kind of it's in a way it's not it's in it's not high medieval high fantasy at all so I, i'm trying i try not i try and make my world very unmedieval it's not particularly it's medieval in some parts but it's sort of Bronze Age, Iron Age, Dark Age, and Mike similarly with City of Sacrifice, he's writing stuff that's not—it's not a metal-based culture. It's kind of Mesoamerican, and of course they famously they didn't—they had gold and silver, but they didn't have useful metals. They only had um, so it's a—it's again it's a totally different world to the kind of very very cliched medieval high fantasy. And he's just his imagination is just astonishing. Um, 
And um, actually, the other book I should really would like to give a shout out to is it's not in the slightest bit grimdark, but Sam Sam Hawke's uh, City of Lies, mm-hmm. which is um, it's just it's fantastic modern fantasy. It's um, she's just it's got beautiful little things like it's set about people who are poisoners and sort of pharmacists and poisoners. So every chapter has a beginning, which is a little extract from the pharmacopoeia in her world. So you get little her, you get her, each chapter begins with a description of a herb or a root or a type of earth or stone or something, which has, and it's particular, it's different effects, it's healing effects or it's toxic effects. It's just little things like that, little details like that, where you know a book is really special, where someone's, again, done that kind of work and you have this completely convincing entries in a second world pharmacopoeia and you just you're not reading it for the plot necessarily you're just reading it you're reading it to be in another world you're reading it like i talk about fantasy as travel writing you're reading it as travel writing you're reading it as being transported from the world you're in into a far more romantic enchanting magical world mm-hmm. and sam really does that yeah yeah, I, it's a special book. Yeah, yeah, I, I highly agree with with, yeah. with both of those. Uh, Fletcher does not get enough love uh, for his novels. Yeah, Man- Manifest Illusions, especially Beyond Redemption, is kind of what got me reading grim dark uh, fiction. And I've read every book that he's written, uh, and I actually had a, a beta read a majority of them, especially his newer stuff, um, to kind of give him some critiques and so forth. And yeah, it's, every single one just continues to get better. And uh, I just don't see why he doesn't get the love that he absolutely deserves. And, and same thing for Sam Hawke. Um, I read City of Lies when it first came out. Uh, and I've kind of been one of her cheerleaders, I guess, for, for getting uh, Hollow Empire finished up. Um, just kind of giving her, um, you know, just some joy <laughs> in the writing process because I know it's been it's been stressful for sure. So, um, But, I, I yeah, I, I agree. They, they, both of those authors definitely need – some more, uh, some more readership, uh, including including your readership. I mean, come on, Dad Gummit. <laughs> well, you know, I suspect myself and Fletch do basically share a readership. I think we're kind of um, we're often yeah we're often paired together. We're um, yeah um, yeah no we do often get linked together and yeah um, we do yeah. <laughs> Well, um, everyone that's listening in, um, you can find Anna's entire trilogy, Empires of Dust, uh, in stores in stores worldwide. Uh, it's The Court of Broken Knives, The Tower of Living and Dying, and The House of Sacrifice. And guys, this series is one that I will find myself reading again and again for years to come. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's definitely grim, dark, bloody, gritty, beautiful, emotionally charged, and all other adjectives I can't really think of right now. Um it's just, it's phenomenal. Uh, and if you guys listen to audiobooks, uh, like I said, Colin Mace does the audio. Uh, he does an absolutely phenomenal job. He's also done, like I said, the Ravensmark series from Ed McDonald. Uh, he's actually done uh, a voice in some of Pierce Brown's uh, newest novels, uh, like Iron Gold he and Dark did, Age. Um, he did uh, Peter B. Brett. He narrates the, all the Peter B. Brett books as well, The Demon Cycle. Yes. Yes, which yes. is how, um, yeah, no, so, yeah, I was sort of given, I was asked, they asked uh, They asked him to narrate my books based on him having done the Demon Cycle for um, HubCons in the UK as well, so, yeah. Great choice. <laughs> <laughs> it must be 
bizarre job. What do you do? I read fantasy novels into a microphone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is my job. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, Jeremy Zoll, uh, who wrote, um, oh gosh, I'm going to mess up the title, uh, which it's coming out in May or June. Yes, yeah, I really should know the title because uh, I know Jeremy quite well. But yeah, Stormblood. Um, Stormblood. <laughs> Uh, yes. I think he just announced that that Colin's actually doing his his book as well. So yeah, he's just getting he's, he's just making his rounds. Must be like some kind of bizarre. Like I don't know whether it's his career advisor. What do you want to do when you grow up? Well, what I want to do is I want to read fancy novels into a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, but guys, as far as Anna goes, you can find her on social media. You can find her on Twitter at Queen of Grimdark. I mean. Easy, easy peasy. Find her on, on, on Twitter, uh, in, Instagram at Anna Smith Spark, uh, on Facebook at Queen of Grimdark as well. And then you can no, find Facebook's her. Facebook's Anna Smith Spark. They wouldn't let me be Queen of Grimdark on Facebook because I couldn't. I, yeah, I can't find a big gas bill saying that that's the name I'm usually referred to. By, <laughs> unfortunately, I, you've got a you've got a Facebook page that's no, Queen of Grimdark, though, right? Don't you have a Don't you have a Facebook uh, book page that's Queen of Grimdark? I, I swore Facebook I found book it. Page as well, which um. I don't understand book pages. I just post the same thing. I post less on it, and I post the ah, same thing. Okay. So. All right, Anna Smith Spark then, <laughs> and then uh, you can find her website at quarterbrokenknives.org. Um, but which is a really rubbish website because I never get around to updating it. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's fine. It's like most author websites. It's not a big deal. <laughs> it does have some links to some recipes, however. I had the incredible. Um, I was so lucky. Um, a reviewer, wonderful reviewer called Wall, who used to do cocktail recipes. She did cocktail, did a couple of cocktails for the books. And then um, a person called The Speculative Kitchen did some cakes that are based on their cake. And there's a little tiny, there's a little scene in The Court of Broken Knives where they, they go to a village and they eat these curd cakes. And she made the curd cakes, and every re- every food stuff that she used to make the curd cakes are actually referenced in the books. Huh. And then, so then later on, I wrote another story about the Silkies, which is the village where they get the curd cakes, and I put the curd cakes in again. So there's this whole kind of weird thing where I mention these cakes, and then she bake make these were actually they're now actually real cakes. There is actually a real recipe for them, which is now the definitive recipe. And then I wrote a story where the cakes come up again. Um, <laughs> And they're really delicious because it's all the foodstuffs I mentioned in the books. I tend to write mentions foodstuffs where I'm talking about things that are nice, obviously, and mention foodstuffs I like. So basically she came up with a recipe which based on all the things I like the most and made these cakes for me. So, yeah, it's just fantastic. I have cakes. I have cakes and two different cocktails based on my books. <laughs> <laughs> to my own personal tastes. There you go. There you go. Yes. Well, Anna, um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of today and uh, and chatting with me here on the podcast. Um, like I said, I, I'm a huge fan of you, uh, of your books, of your ridiculous shoes, um, <laughs> <laughs> but just mostly of you. You're you're an amazing person, and and I, I really enjoy your books and I enjoy your writing, and I'm just looking forward to to more of it. Oh, thank you. You know, um, and you know, I mean. I- Hopefully, at some point, conventions will start up again, and um, I will be fitting around conventions. Um, of course, I, I was, I'm guest of honour at BristolCon this year. If BristolCon goes ahead, 
already, I mean, it's, it's in November, but already we're contingency planning for, I'm assuming it probably won't go ahead. But yeah, I had a whole glorious summer of conventions lined up um, in Germany and in the US and in England. But next year, I will be at loads of conventions again. And um, I, I'm trying to get over to the US at least once a year. And I would like to get to Germany or to Spain, given my books have been published in German and Spanish. And I'll be doing all the major UK cons. And if you see me, if you see a slightly look, worried looking woman in a black dress with really stupid shoes, it is probably me. Um, come up and say hello, please. Um, <laughs> I usually look slightly worried because I'm always slightly overwhelmed by huge crowds. But no, come up and say hello if you see me when when we can all when we can all meet in the flesh again and actually meet each other properly and speak and be at conventions again Hopefully please come up soon. <laughs> always always just come up and talk to me Absolutely. and if you see the intense in, intense conversation with a with someone else try and check they're not another right to <laughs> somewhere out there is someone who's going to discover that they just barge through steve erickson the way to talk to him about my shoes <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's not let's not shove the Steve Ericksons of the world out of the way to to, to glance at Anna's shoes. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll we'll start a, we'll start a ticket counter and we'll uh, we'll yes. allow everybody to take a ticket. Oh yes. my goodness! Well, thank you again for coming on, and uh, and and maybe we can do this again uh, when your next book comes out. And oh, I, I'd love to I'd love to chat about it. Yes. Awesome. Well, you, uh, hopefully you can enjoy the rest of your weekend. Hopefully you can get more than one walk a day and, uh, hopefully the craziness of the world soon ends and you can get to your market. Unless I have a reason to go out to the shop. Uh, Let's not get arrested. Let's not, let's not do that. (laughs) No, we can now be, we can be fined for going outside without due reason. Um, yeah. And the thing is, I thoroughly agree with that. I, right now, um, finding people for going outside their house without due reason. Depressingly, I'm thoroughly in favour of it because the alternative is too horrifying to contemplate. True. As anyone who has read the plague scenes in The Tower of Living and Died will know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, will you be safe out there? And um, and yeah, and we'll be we'll be talking again soon. Yes, yes, and yes. Stay safe, everyone. Stay indoors. Stay safe and wash your hands a lot. <laughs> For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read The Court of Broken Knives, stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by Hashtag Audio and read for you by Colin Mace. I hope you enjoy it. Knives. Knives everywhere coming down like rain. Down to close work like that. Men wrestling in the mud, jabbing at each other, too tired to care anymore. Just die and get it over with. Half of them fighting with their guts hanging out of their stomachs, stinking of shit oozing pink and red and white. Half-dead men lying in the filth, screaming. A whole lot of things, screaming. Impossible to tell who's who anymore. Mud and blood and shadows and that's it. Kill them, kill them all. Keep killing until we're all dead. The knife jabs and twists, and the man he's fighting falls sideways, all the breath going out of him with a sigh of relief. Another there behind. Gods. His arms ache. His head aches, blood in his eyes. He twists the knife again and thrusts with a broken-off sword, and that man too dies. Fire explodes somewhere over to the left, white as maggots, silent as maggots, then shrieks as men burn. He swings the stub of the sword and catches a man on the leg, 
Not hard, but hard enough so the man stumbles, and he's on him quick with the knife. A good lot of blood and the man's down and dead, still flapping about like a fish, but you can see in his eyes that he's finished. His legs just haven't quite caught up yet. The sun is setting, casting long shadows. Oh, beautiful evening. Stars rising in a sky, the colour of rotting wounds. The dragon's mouth, the white lady, the dog. A good star, the dog. Brings plagues and fevers and inflames desire. Its rising marks the coming of summer. So maybe no more campaigning in the sodding rain. Wet leather stinks, mud stinks, shit stinks when the latrine trench overflows. Another burst of white fire. He hates the way it's silent, unnatural, unnerving. Screams again. Screams so bad your ears ring for days. The sky weeps and howls, and it's difficult to know what's screaming. You or the enemy or the other things. Men are fighting in great clotted knots like milk curds. He sprints a little to where two men are struggling together. Leaps at one from behind, pulls him down, skewers him. Hard crack of bone, soft, lovely yield of fat and innards. Suety. The other yells hoarsely and swings a punch at him. Lost his knife, even. Bare knuckles. He ducks and kicks out hard, overbalances and almost falls. The man kicks back, tries to get him in a wrestling grip. Up close together, two pairs of teeth gritted at each other. A hand smashes his face, gets his nose, digs in. He bites at it, dirty, calloused. Iron taste of blood bright in his mouth. But the hand won't let up crushing his face into his skull. He swallows and almost chokes on the blood pouring from the wound he's made. Blood and snot and shreds of cracked, dry human skin. Manages to get his knife in and stabs hard into the back of the man's thigh. Not enough to kill. But the hand jerks out from his face, lashes out and gets his opponent in the soft part of the throat. Pulls his knife out and gazes around the battlefield at the figures hacking at each other while the earth rots beneath them. All eternity they've been fighting. All the edges, blunted. Sword edges and knife edges and the edges in the mind. Keep killing, keep killing, keep killing till we're all dead. And then he's dead. A blade gets him in the side, in the weak point under the shoulder, where his armour has to give to let the joint move, far in, twisting, aiming down, killing wound. He hears his body rip. Oh, gods. Oh, gods and demons. Oh, gods and demons and fuck. He swings round, strikes at the man who stabbed him. The figure facing him is a wraith, scarlet with blood, head open, oozing out brain stuff. You're dying, he thinks. You're dying and you've killed me. Not fair. Shadows twist round them. We're all dying, he thinks, one way or another. Just some of us quicker than others. You fight and you die, and always another twenty men queuing up behind you. Why we march and why we die, and what life means, it's all a lie. Death, death, death. Understands that better than he's ever understood anything, even his own name. But suddenly, for a moment, he's not sure he wants to die. The battlefield falls silent. He blinks and sees light. A figure in silver armour, white, shining, blazing with light, like the sun. 
a red cloak billowing in the wind, moves through the ranks of the dead and the dying, and the light beats onto them, pure and clean. Amrath! Amrath! Voices whispering like the wind blowing across salt marsh. Voices calling like birds, here walking among us, bright as summer dew. Amrath! Amrath! The shadows fall away as the figure passes. Everything is light. Amrath! Amrath! The men cheer with one voice. No longer one side or the other, just men gazing and cheering as the figure passes. He cheers until his throat aches, feels restored, seeing it. No longer tired and wounded and dying, healed, strong. Amrath! Amrath! The figure halts, gazes around, searching, finds. A dark-clad man leaps forward, swaying into the light. Poised across from the shining figure, yearning towards it, draws a sword burning with blue flame. Amrath! Amrath! Harsh voice, like crows, challenging. Amrath! He watches joyfully. So beautiful. Watches, and nothing in the world matters except to behold the radiance of his god. The bright figure draws a sword that shines like all the stars and the moon and the sun, a single dark ruby in its hilt. The dark figure rushes onwards, screeching something, meets the bright figure with a clash. White light and blue fire, blue fire and white light. His eyes hurt almost as he watches. But he cannot bear to look away. The two struggle together, like a candle flame flickering, like the dawn sun on the sea. The silver sword comes up, throws the dark figure back. Blue fire blazes, engulfing everything. The shining, silver armour, running with flame. Crash of metal, sparks like a blacksmith's anvil. The shining figure takes a step back, defensively, parries, strikes out. The other blocks it, roars, howls, laughs. The mage blade swings again, slicing, trailing blue fire. Blue arcs in the evening gloom, shapes and words written on the air. Death words, pain words, words of hope and fear and despair. The shining figure parries again, the silver sword rippling beneath the impact of the other's blade. So brilliant with light that rainbows dance on the ground around it. Like a woman's hair throwing out drops of water, tossing back her head in summer rain, like snow falling, like coloured stars, the two fighters shifting, stepping in each other's footprints, stepping in each other's shadows, circling like birds. The silver sword flashes out and up and downwards, and the other falls back, bleeding from the throat. Great spreading gush of red. The blue flame dies. He cheers, and his heart is almost aching. It's so full of joy. The shining figure turns, looks at the men watching, looks at him. Screams. Things shriek back that make the world tremble. The silver sword rises and falls. Five men, ten, twenty. A pile of corpses. He stares mesmerised at the dying, the beauty of it, the most beautiful thing in the world, killing and killing in such perfect joy, his heart overflowing, his heart singing. This, oh, indeed, oh, for this all men are born. 
He screams in answer, dying, throws himself against his god's enemies with knife and sword and nails and teeth. Why we march, and why we die, and what life means, it's all a lie. Death, death, death. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with fantasy author Anna Smith Spark. Um, sorry, just having to kind of catch my breath. I uh, I love her so much. <laughs> She's literally one of my favorite authors ever. Um, but guys, uh, I actually have added some authors to the docket over the next couple of weeks. Um, just with COVID being as big as it is and continuing to grow every day um, and kind of being stuck at the house for work, uh, especially with uh, the missus being pregnant and so forth. So it looks like I'll probably be here for the foreseeable future. Um, but I'm actually going to be chatting with Mike Shackle uh, in a couple of days on the 30th. Uh, he's the author of we are the dead, uh, which is ooh, it's such a phenomenal uh, grim dark novel. I guess you can call it grim dark fantasy novel. Um, I read it last year and uh, it was one of my top reads of 2019. Uh, it actually comes out, I believe in May in the U S so I got a copy from the author himself uh, through Gallant's, but I'll be chatting with him on the 30th. Uh, Max Beery, author of the upcoming book Providence on April 2nd. Uh, and then I'll be talking to fantasy author, Rob Hayes, uh, his book, the Along the Razor's Edge, which is the beginning of a brand new trilogy he's releasing, comes out here in just a couple of days on the 30th. Uh, but again, I'll be talking with him around the 4th. Uh, and then Nick Martell on April 7th. And I mean, the names just kind of keep coming in. I'm about to be doing two to three episodes a week. So uh, definitely be looking forward to those guys. And uh, just as always, thanks for tuning in and stay safe out there. <laughs>